Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dialogue Out Loud series. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today, we're excited to have with us Jeremy M. Christensen, an attorney in Washington, D.C., and a historian. In his fascinating article, The Garden Atonement and the Mormon Cross Taboo, Jeremy explores the history of Latter-day Saint distinctive ideas about the Garden Atonement, or the idea that Jesus' suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane was a vital part of his redemptive act, for some being even more important than his suffering on the cross. It turns out that this wasn't always a part of LDS teaching, but was formalized in the first half of the 20th century. Join us as we chat with Jeremy about his research and the implications of his work for understanding the history of atonement theology in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Sit back, relax, and let's dive into this thought-provoking conversation with Jeremy Christensen. Jeremy, welcome. It's so nice to talk to you about your research. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Taylor. I appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. So why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about your research and what motivated you to study LDS atonement theology? So I started, what's what's funny is that with a lot of things I've written, and maybe this has happened to you too, you start writing one thing and it flowers into something else that turns into something else that turns into like a fourth thing. And that's what you end up actually writing about or publishing. And I, I have somewhere in the recesses of my Dropbox, a not even remotely finished manuscript of uh, around 100,000 words right now of my musings on on um, sort of comparators between uh, different ideas in Roman Catholicism and Mormon belief and practice and doctrine. And in one section, I had a sort of dis- a, a discussion about the cross and I had read uh, Michael Reed's 2012 book, which is highly recommended. Uh, I, I believe it has a D. Michael Quinn endorsement on the back, a blurb. So that in and of itself should be enough of a recommendation for that book. And I was really fascinated by by the conclusions of that book, of how it is that the the sort of taboo or uncomfortable relationship that exists uh, predominantly in the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints vis-a-vis the cross or cross iconography or the cross as a devotional item, uh, how that came about and that 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 wasn't always the case. And as I dug further into that, I just had this idea one time and thought, well, he doesn't discuss the idea about the, the, the atonement in the Garden of Gethsemane and I thought, where did that come from? Why, how did that how did that sort of start out? And I started to read more and research more and and peel back maybe some of the blinders that we sometimes put on. I think in particular, there's a, an instinct to read some doctrine and covenants passages and, and some Book of Mormon passages through a particular lens. And it was hard for me to kind of peel off that lens and maybe look at the text on its own terms or in a different context. And as I started to do that and and dig around a little bit, I thought, 
hey, there's a really interesting um, story, I think, to be told here, a plausible one about how uh, how there's a connection between the development of this cross taboo and the development over time of the relatively distinctive idea in LDS theology that Jesus' atonement was effectuated primarily, if not exclusively, in the Garden of Gethsemane rather than on the cross. So really, you're you're making this, we'll just plug again, Michael Reed's Banishing the Cross, the Emergence of a Mormon Taboo as a, a sort of important framework for, for your argument. And, and you're say, sort of saying that as the um, uh, LDS aversion to the cross, this Mormon taboo, as you say, sort of emerges, uh, you're also seeing the flip side of that in the way that Latter-day Saints are shifting the atonement away from the cross and over to the garden. Is that a fair kind of a summary of the of the arc of the argument? Yeah, yeah. So, so the arc sort of sets out and, and says, for context, if you haven't read Reed's book, here's sort of a brief summary of how Reed, I think, pretty persuasively argues that early on in Mormon history, th- there isn't a particular aversion. It's not that there's a particular devotion to the cross either. It's just sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. It features in, um, you know, the lives of, of the earliest uh, people in the Mormon movement and Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith and in their lives, but also through kind of the early Utah period. And some of the best parts are, you know, pictures of people wearing crucifixes or or, or plain crosses, cross jewelry, uh, crosses being used in, in floral arrangements at, uh, I think, John Taylor's funeral. Um, uh, some of the Elias temples were originally cruciform. I think the annexes sort of obscure that, but I think the Cardston Alberta temple and the Hawaii temple both uh, are are cruciform, uh, which was a very you know popular standard way to build to build churches and other Christian religious meeting houses. But then the discussion shifts this really fascinating part of Utah history of the Enzyme Peak. Uh, controversy. So around 1915-1916, there's a proposal by uh, a number of people, but B.H. Roberts is is behind this proposal, sort of ecumenical idea of putting a large concrete Latin cross at Enzyme Peak to commemorate um, both the, the Mormon pioneers' entrance into the valley, but also he sort of notes, you know, a nod to to the Catholic explorers and priests who had arrived earlier in time, and and to put to put that up, that became very controversial. There was a lawsuit over it. A lot of things, a lot of things happened, but that served as a bit of a catalyst for certain, say, factions uh, in the LDS hierarchy who had uncomfortable feelings with the cross, its association with Catholicism, and and to some extent the the idea of of uh, the church at that time, I think, trying to both assimilate, as it does in the early 20th century, as, as you know, the polygamy era ends and the church is a little bit more, we're going to play ball <laughs> with, with the rest of the country, right, as they get gain statehood and these things. But at the same time, that poses a problem, right, that they need to maintain their distinctiveness. And 
Reed talks uh, about how this taboo sort of develops out of that time. People like Joseph Fielding Smith and David O. McKay are really instrumental in cementing this idea that, uh, you know, still predominates. It's still very, you know, very influential today that that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints don't use the cross as a devotional item or wear it as jewelry. It doesn't, you know, feature in sacred architecture any longer. And and so I, as I started to dig around, I, you know, asked a really, I think, simple question, which was, what did Joseph Smith teach about the atonement? And was really shocked to find out it's really not a lot. Then it's a fairly well recognized uh, fact among scholars of, of early LDS history that Joseph Smith's uh, teachings say set aside the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon. His teachings on the atonement are not particularly extensive. Uh, there's not a lot there. It's not an idea that he put as much energy into as other ideas. And when I started to read his references to the atonement, they sounded fairly uh, consistent with a, a more cross or Calvary-centric idea of the atonement, uh, a more traditional idea that Jesus' atonement is is effectuated on the cross at Calvary. And so I just started looking at other sources. One, one thing that I, I did, and then found some other research by a Professor John Hilton, who's done some great work on this, but I went through and uh, there is a, a, a database that you can access to run what are called corpus linguistics analyses. And it's a database of all of the Journal of Discourses and General Conference. And you can do, I, I, I kept it simple, I was just doing word searches about Gethsemane. And you see this just, just astounding sort of nothing, nothing, nothing. And then in the early 20th century, it kind of starts to go up and then it, you know, really jumps in say the 30s, 40s, 50s, into the 80s. Uh, um, and that, you know, piqued my interest more. I started reading through I think I read through 207 or so references in the Journal of Discourses to the atonement and the garden to sort of get a qualitative sense of, of how this shakes out. And, and my read is that uh, what, what the evidence tends to show is that they spoke of the atonement in cross-centric, Calvary-centric terms, and that the Garden of Gethsemane or the suffering in the garden, more particularly doesn't get a lot of airtime, but when it does, it's in the more traditional vein of Jesus suffering in anticipation of the crucifixion. Lorenzo Snow talks about it this way, John Taylor, who ends up being a, uh, an interesting sort of point in this whole discussion. He also talks about it that way. Uh, and I also look through other sources. Um, you know, there isn't a as strong of a tradition, I think, in LDS history that, that ties hymns as strictly to LDS belief, uh, because um, the LDS church often borrows Protestant hymns that sometimes have, you know, theology that, that is even contrary to LDS theology, but they're, they're sort of traditional hymns that they might pull in. But I went and I read through and searched through all of the, the early hymnals and then some early catechisms that used to exist and other, other things. And I found a, a really, what I think is a consistent, strong pattern that this idea of, of the garden being a part of the atonement uh, 
not not really there. And it's something that emerges in in the late 19th century. So the the narrative that you tell is so fascinating of uh, a sort of shift away from a, a cross-centered uh, atonement to Gethsemane as the place corresponding, as you said, to the to the rise of the Mormon cross taboo. And it's an interesting one because the way that many historians tell um, what's happening in the 20th century for for Latter Day Saints is that they're actually assimilating to broader American Christianity, to, to, to these broader things. But you're pointing out an area where Latter-day Saints are actually turning away from an area where they used to have it in common with other Christians and have now sort of developed a new tradition. Why do you think that is? Why why is it that Latter-day Saints are sort of zagging just as the rest of the the broader LDS culture is zigging towards, uh, towards broader American Christianity? That's a great question. And while there's going to be some speculation here, I think that with any crew that finds itself in a minority position in a broader culture, there's there's always two sort of questions in tension with one another at the same time. On the one hand, how do we call ourselves a group? A, by definition, a group's got us's and it's got them's, or it's not a group, right? It's not identifiable. And there's some boundary policing uh, of, okay, who are us and who are them? And that they're for, for a faith, there's got to be, I think, some, some distinction for them to claim something unique, something about the restoration, right? That this is, this is the message of the LDS church. So, so they have to have something that makes them different. Uh, and, they are, I, th I think at this time, especially with the demise of polygamy, there is a, a conscious effort on the part of the church to become a, a part of the broader society. And uh, I think once in, in a documentary, Terrell Givens put it really well, talking about David O. McKay as, as one of the you know big pushers of this, that he strides in with that shock of white hair and that white suit and, and looking like a businessman and clean shaven, no beard. Uh, and I think the way um, Professor Givens put it was, we're not the bearded polygamists out in the desert anymore. It's sort of, there's a, there is a, a shift in, in the tone. But I think for any group experiencing that, there's a tension and you've got to sort of draw some boundaries of, okay, but what makes us different? And there's undeniably things about LDS theology that make uh, that make it different from broader Protestant or, say, Catholic Christianity or Orthodox Christianity. So I, th I think it's that, that sort of just trying to resolve that tension. And as they, you know, Reed's book paints the cross taboo as a bit of a historical accident for who kind of happens to be in charge at the time, like who's driving the ship. David O. McKay, at the time that solidifies, uh, does not have warm feelings toward Roman Catholicism. There's good evidence from Greg Prince that cooled substantially later in his life. But in, in say, the, you know, the 40s and the 50s, he has those feelings. And it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, the atonement becomes a really important feature of LDS theology. I think more important in the 20th century than it probably was prior to that time. And the Book of Mormon, right? There's a lot of emphasis on reading the Book of Mormon. 
which I think anybody who reads the Book of Mormon will will see atonement is one of the largest themes of, of the book. And so if you're going to say, hey, we're the restored church, we're different, uh, and there's something distinct about us, and the atonement's really important. It makes sense that maybe we have something special to offer about the nature of the atonement that that other faiths, you know, don't have. I would I would add, I think it is also, and I think there's less speculation, a function of again who are the more prominent voices in LDS theology at that time, and that's Joseph Fielding Smith. James E. Talmadge, Bruce R. McConkie, right? Three of the most influential writers and and, and theologians, um, and really systematic theologians. Something that maybe doesn't isn't as prominent anymore as it used to be. Of having members of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency provide really systematic details of LDS belief, and and part of this. Uh, I think there are other sources that talk about the the real the rigorous development of an apostasy narrative in the early 20th century. James E. Talmadge's great apostasy is is obviously part of this. And what you see, and I, I lay out in the article, is a lot of the use of well, we can distinguish ourselves from kind of the the archetype of the great apostasy in their eyes, which is the Roman Catholic Church. And they start to, they actually pretty clearly make a connection between the cross as a sign of apostasy. And uh, and by the time you get to Joseph Fielding Smith, the the realization or the revelation that the, the atonement occurs in Gethsemane, not on the cross, or if it's on the cross, it's maybe it's secondarily, but it's not as important as the garden, as being a sort of that's a sign of of us being the true church of of the restoration, right? That uh, a number of them link the uh, vision of Constantine on the Melvian Bridge, um, uh, and and some other some some other I think generally available Protestant and some Enlightenment polemic uh, writing polemical writings against Roman Catholicism. Uh, but they take that idea, right, of, well, you know, the cross becomes this devotional item, and, and this leads into arguments about the use of the cross being uh, being idolatrous, right? That devotion to the cross as an, as an item might be idolatry. Or, uh, and that, you know, that, that picks up and I think really um, starts to give it steam. But an interesting fact is it takes time. So James Talmadge is, I think, the first person to really clearly posit this doctrine in Jesus the Christ, where he says, actually, the suffering in the garden was the greatest and the worst. I think, I think, I would love to be proven wrong. I would love if somebody found more information on it, but I think that's the first place it ever happens. And then from, but it still takes a long time to, to pick up. And if you look at general conference talks in the 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s, you have in different general conferences, even in the same year, members of the Quorum of the Twelve, some saying uh, the, you know, talking about Gethsemane 
being the, the locus of the atonement, and others saying, you know, when Jesus suffered in the garden, you know, anticipating his crucifixion, like phrased in this kind of older way of thinking about it within the LDS church. So you kind of have this period of of transition. And then by the 80s, I think it's pretty well, pretty well resolved. This is so fascinating, Jeremy, and I'm so appreciative that you took some time to chat with us today, to share your research, to summarize some of the key points. Uh, it's really a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Absolutely. We hope that our listeners have enjoyed this conversation and have learned something new about the history of garden atonement theory. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to check out Jeremy M. Christensen's article, The Garden Atonement and the Mormon Cross Taboo, in the winter 2022 issue of Dialogue, and explore other resources on this topic there. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave us a review or get in touch with any comments or questions. We hope you tune in for future episodes of our podcast. Thanks again. Bye. Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz, and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.